Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom in Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host tonight here on the Gist of Freedom, uh, coming to you via blackhistoryblog.com. We are continuing our reading and discussion of Benjamin Quarles' book, The Black Abolitionist. This is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, who am I talking to? My name is David Head. Good evening. Oh, hi, David. How are you? Glad you could um, join us. Were you able to pick up much of the uh, reading yes, of The Black uh, Abolitionist? I picked up uh, the reading and some very prominent African-American abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, uh, William Highland, Garner. It was quite a few people that you don't, uh, you're not familiar with, a lot of these young people are not familiar with nowadays that played a prominent part in the push for our uh, emancipation even before President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and how a lot of these men are left out black and white. Okay. I want our listeners to understand that uh, David Head is a historian, a Granville P. Woods historian. Uh, Mr. Woods was sued twice by Thomas Edison and lost both times. Uh, David, won't you tell us a little bit about uh, Mr. Uh, Granville T. Woods? Okay. Uh, Benjamin Qualis, I'd like to bring his name to, to, to mention his name because he was uh, uh, an extraordinary historian and educator. And the way he uh, put together the Golden Legacy magazine, he was the educational consultant of the Golden Legacy magazine. And that magazine was targeting young readers. And it was somewhat like a, in a comic book style, but it had some very serious African-American historical content that captivated a young reader. And uh, I was one of those young readers, and they did one of the articles on uh, Granville T. Woods. And uh, like many of the uh, articles for Golden Legacy magazine, uh, they were full of trials, tribulations, and triumphs of our great ancestors. Uh, All the stories that I remember were stories of uh, inspiration, uh, now, Granville T. Woods' uh, project really began in 1996. And uh, what I was doing was uh, doing some research on uh, the African-American trans- presence in transportation at that time after viewing a documentary about transportation that did not mention any contributions that we made 
to America in the transportation industry. So I wrote something called The African Presence in Transportation, and lo and behold, what I found out would make us proud. Now, there were many things that we contribute to transportation, but go uh, in, in the area of invention, uh, Granville T. Woods had invented the third reel, and I noticed that during that time in 1998, when I was finished with that research material, and I presented it to the Transport Workers Union Black History Committee, which I became the chairman of uh, some years after that, uh, it spoke uh, about, uh, what should I say, uh, I brought that to the attention of our, our rank and file. Now, at that time, they were speaking about the New York City subway system, which was built in 1900. So in the year of 1998, it would have been, it was getting ready to be a centennial year in the year 2000. And they spoke about the pioneers on that put together the New York City transit system, subway system. And they failed to mention Granville T. Wood's third rail contribution. So what I did, I began a fact-finding mission to get Mr. Granville T. Woods recognized and acknowledged by the top officials in the New York City transit system. I see. Um, now, you mentioned that you started your studies with a book or a comic book that was written by Benjamin Quarles. Is that right? No, he was one of the people that, based upon his style, I somewhat imitated that somewhat because I liked the style using illustrations to tell a story uh, for the book that I just, that I, my book was just published three weeks ago. It's a, oh. a it's an illustrated book for young readers. But my research, my early beginnings, were somewhat in that same fashion, but it really wasn't a book. It was research material to present to the MTA. And I went to Columbus, Ohio, where Grandma T. Woods was born. I found a lot of personal information about his life. I also went to Cincinnati, where he began his inventive career. I found information also there. I, I went to... Uh, Howard University, there was a little bit of information regarding W.E. Du Bois, uh, but it was at the Schomburg Center in New York City that it was, you know, it was at the Schomburg Center that I really uh, found the key uh, information that really set me off in the right direction. That was a gentleman by the name of Middleton A. Spike Harris. He had did some lengthy research on Mr. Woods to find Mr. Woods' burial site as well as getting a school name in Brooklyn on Bergen and uh, Rochester Elementary School, PS 235, Ground T. Elementary School. So I stand on his shoulders uh, today. So is it true that um, Edison uh, sued Mr. Woods twice? What was that all about? Oh, okay, that was regarding everything is wireless communication today. Everybody's into this wireless this and wireless that. But actually, Granville T. Woods invented the first wireless communication device on the railroad back in 1887, and he began that concept actually in 1879, and it took him uh, about eight years to finally receive that patent. And one reason, well, there were two reasons. There were two inventors both seeking to claim that uh, 
that sector and to capitalize on that sector dealing with real uh, communication safety. And everybody came up with a, a, a real transportation device to eliminate that problem from an electrical point of view. Now, Woods, he began his concepts in early 1880, uh, and he had documentary to prove that and collaborative witnesses also to prove that he was the prior inventor over two inventors. One was Thomas Edison, and there's another inventor named Lucius Phelps. And they all went to the U.S. Patent Court regarding the interference case. And uh, Woods beat uh, Phelps twice. He also beat Thomas Edison after he beat Phelps. Edison stepped to the stepped up and claimed that invention also. So they're always trying to capture that market from a to capitalize on that invention. And Mr. Woods came to the forefront of that. But unfortunately, if you look at the history books today and documentaries, you if you even go to Wikipedia, you look at wireless communication on the railroad they mentioned Thomas Edison's device in 1891, but they never mentioned Mr. Graham T. Woods' induction telegraph device in 1887. Was there a gentleman by the name of Tesla that was also an inventor during uh, that time, working in yes. the same area? T Tesla was doing something with AC current, uh, which was more or had more multiple uses than DC direct current and had more uh, long distance uses as well. And Thomas Edison had problems with that because he was a major distributor of direct current and he tried to destroy the theories on AC being that it was more dangerous and he's poured a lot of money into that. And he came up against uh, Tesla with those views. Tesla would eventually went out through the assistance of Westinghouse who uh, was it with, who supported uh, Tesla's ideas, and they did something, and uh, there was a large, uh, there was a large program uh, back in 18, I think it was 1890 something, regarding uh, some kind of fear, and they utilized uh, uh, Tesla's AC current, dealing with utilizing the power of uh, what's that Niagara Falls. They utilized the power, the water power, to to motivate power for that for that event, and they used AC current, and they showed that AC current had more use, and it began to win over uh, uh, Edison's uh, invention. And now, Tesla, was, did he develop AC or DC? Tesla developed AC current as used today. Okay, and Tesla's full name was Marconi, right? Tesla Marconi? No, 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 it's not Tesla. It's not Marconi. Marconi did something with the radio frequency. Uh, radio waves, there's arguments, oh. there's arguments that uh, uh, Nikola, Nikolai Tesla Nikolai Tesla invented something prior to Marconi's. But Marconi gets credit, contributed to the radio uh, before Tesla. But Tesla, he was... Uh, dealing with something with high-frequency radio waves from a more global point of view. But uh, he had problems with uh, J.P. Morgan, who initially backed him, 
but then he thought he was going to give away electricity free, and he was basically blackballed by uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, and he, everybody was like, hands off. He told everybody, don't touch this guy. And nobody okay. would go up against uh, J.P. Morgan. So uh, clear this up for me. Woods' invention, was it AC or DC? Woods' invention utilized both AC and DC. Utilized uh, both. The, the, the third rail, electric third rail subway system is DC current. And what, and what is exactly the third rail? The third rail, the third rail is an electrical conduit system. You have a, you have two rails where the train goes down. Then you have a third rail to the left of the train that's utilized as a conduit to power the train. Okay, and that was Mr. Woods' uh, invention. Yeah, he invented that in eighteen, well, actually in nineteen oh one. And what happened with Woods was that he filed a patent. Which was fifteen dollars at time at that time, and to get uh, to for them to issue him a patent, he would have to pay them twenty dollars. But he, he didn't have the issuing fee. And after a certain time, he would have to renew the patent. So he reached out to General Electric, who helped him renew the patent, helped him amend the patent, and eventually bought the third rail patent. And they would also buy, purchase four more electrical third rail patents for Gramble, from Gramble C. Woods. And that's really was the key power source for the New York City subway system. Then in nineteen hundred when they in nineteen oh four when they began operating the subway and it's still utilized today. If you go to the subway, you'll see the third rail and there's a shoe that goes uh across the third rail and that shoe makes contact with the motor to make the train go. There's a piece of wood on top of the third rail because if you touch it, you will become electrified. Okay. What can you tell us about the roller coaster? Okay, the roller coaster uh, was also Granville T. Woods' uh, invention. He was the he's the one that electrified the roller coaster in 1899. He invented something called the amusement apparatus figure eight roller coaster. Now, the first roller coaster was basically gravity based. He didn't invent the first roller coaster. It was very uh, simplistic. It went up and it came down, up and down. Uh, it was all gravity-based. Now, Gravity Woods is the one that invented the figure eight roller coaster. That's the one that loops in, loops out, and go up and under with the uh, the figure eight. And he electrified it also. It was demonstrated in Steeplechase Park in 1909. Uh, the owner, George Tatayu, he was very fascinated with electrical devices. And he purchased that device from Granville T. Woods, and it was displayed in 1909. I went out to Coney Island in 2009 and was able to get Mr. Woods finally inducted in Coney Island Hall of Fame for inventing the first electrical roller coaster. Wow. Congratulations to you on that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I also was able to get a street named after Granville T. Woods in Coney Island because he went to Coney Island in 1892 in 1893, with two different electric railway systems that was revolutionary during that time. Both of them were very successful. That information is in my book. And that's why I went back to Coney Island, because it's the home of modern rail transportation. And so, through the help of Community Board 13, 
we was able to get a street name in 2008. If you come out of the D train, F train, the last stop, which is Stillwell Terminal, Coney Island, right across the street, adjacent to the terminal, is called Granville T. Woods Way. Kudos again. Um, what kind of education, uh, how did he get involved in this um, research and development of these electrical and uh, mechanical type of devices? Granville T. Woods basically got a vocational education. While other people was in school reading uh, from, a, from a book, he was getting education in a machine shop. He became a blacksmith apprentice helper. Then he got more uh, familiar with the, the, the machines. They have different machines in a railroad shop. And when you're making a tool specifically or repairing a tool, most likely you have blueprints. You have always have blueprints to make a tool. And from those blueprints, you got to understand how to calculate the measurements to make the tool, the tool accurately. And you got to read the diagrams because it has different, different diagrams facing left, right, perpendicular, up and down. And through just reading and uh, understanding that, calculating those things, he got an education how to read and write from basically on-the-job on perspective. It was a, a, a purpose behind his reading. He was a man of purpose. So basically, uh, and a, he was a man of purpose and a dream all the time. He was always an innovative type of person, and he had a marked mechanical ability. And he did exceptionally well around professional craftsmen, who was basically, that was their profession. And uh, he was always eager to learn. So... Uh, he would learn more and more about each machine and the dynamics of different metals when it's heated and reading a blueprint's drawing on a, a regular basis. The person who makes the blueprint's draw, drawing is a mechanical engineer. So eventually he became a, a mechanical engineer. And then he got fascinated with electricity. Uh, if you look at any railroad station or any railroad you always see the telegraph pole right next to the railroad, and that's that's using utilizing principles of electricity. And so, being out there in public, most more than likely, fast the older people were saying electricity was the way. There was a lot of new information about electrical journals. He was became a voracious reader, and he had a large appetite on how electric the, about the theories and principles of electricity, and he went to school for a brief period, an engineering school with emphasis on electricity. And when he went back uh, on the railroad for a while as a locomotive engineer, the, the business the, went out of business. Then he opened up his own shop, and he started repairing electrical machinery and then he started inventing things that related to communication. Now, he started a company with his brother, is that correct? No, that's incorrect. He started a company by himself. His brother wasn't around. You see that in a lot of books. But actually, his brother wasn't with him in Cincinnati. Uh, he did that independently, and then when he won the case against Thomas Edison, there was a man by the name of John A. Gano, who was the head of the commerce. He was president of the commerce uh, the business is in Cincinnati, and he was a psychon in business at that time. So 
he's formulated the Woods Electrical Company with some other very prominent men. Uh, that information is all in my book. And they opened up the Woods Electric. Whatever he had a little bench shop eventually, initially, but when they came aboard, they opened up the Woods Electrical Company. Okay, and what's the title of your book again, and where can it be obtained? Okay, the book is uh, called Gramble T. Woods, African-American Pioneer in Communication and Transportation. Okay. It's, it's, it's uh, published by Rose Dog Books. Rose Dog Books. Rosedale Books, okay. Yes. Uh, my website will be coming up called the DLH STEM Foundation, DLH STEM Foundation. Okay, that's your website? Yes, and I can also give you my email if you want that. Yeah, go ahead with the email. D as in David, L as in Larry, H as in Harry Foundation, DLH Foundation at NYC, like New York City dot R R like real road R R like Robert Robert dot com D L H Foundation at NYC dot R R dot com. Okay. Now, um getting into a discussion of our book, The Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles, what was the uh most profound message that you heard in that book reading? Oh, that's a good question. I came in on it late. Uh, the most profound message? Yeah, I mean, what Yeah, what stuck out for you when you came in and was able to start listening? Anything stand out for you? Well, he gave everybody, uh, a lot of those prominent men during that time, he brought out a, a lot of their viewpoints and you have a, a multiple, uh, you know, a multiple ways of looking at the uh, different approaches that each of them, con you know, thought about their conceptions of it. So, anytime you're doing history, it's good to lay out more than just one one direct way. The more people that voices that opinion, then people can make their own uh, assumption on it. And so he brought it out of various points of views during various times and how one person might have a, a concept at one stage, and then five years later he may change his, uh, his uh, concepts and his views. Yeah, I think that's uh, – I noticed that around the idea of colonization, uh, most abolitionists have been uh, not in favor of colonization, and then the wave kind of changed their – to where some of the prominent leaders, abolitionist leaders, start giving a little thought mm -hmm. uh, immigration, and uh, and then the question came up as to whether it would be Haiti, whether it would be Africa, um, Liberia, etc., and uh, some of the confusion about whether some folks felt that they had nothing. Uh, to attach them to Africa. Africa was not a Christian nation, et cetera. And uh, some favored Canada as um, 
I think uh, 3,000 individuals he uh, commented on who left the United States um, at the passing of the uh, Fugitive Slave Act. That number swelled to 15,000. Wow. And a number of blacks uh, felt they would be better off in Canada because they could still be involved in the abolitionist movement and wouldn't be across the ocean. Um, so that that pretty much, um, I think you're right on target with that, how things kind of swayed back and forth uh, for various reasons. Uh, some blacks were tracing their ancestry, for example, uh, beyond Africa uh, to Europeans to uh, some were saying they were of Asian extraction as well as African extraction. Can I, can I cut in for a brief moment? Uh, sure. Yeah. Recently, uh, I went on a, a underground railroad tour to Canada. After reading so much about underground history and abolitionist history, our, our history during that that time period, there's nothing like actually going to a place and seeing it for yourself and going to the different museums and different events around certain uh, cities like Chatham. I uh, can't remember another another city during that time, but there's a lot of different places in Canada that has a rich history, African-American history there, and uh, it's nothing like actually going out and really getting a real taste of that to really make it more come to life. And I suggest all the viewers... Uh, take steps into, you know, when you going, when you hear about history, try to go to those places, uh, the slave market in South Carolina, uh, some of the uh, places in uh, the Geechees, uh, the Gullah Islands. It's, it's nothing like going to those places and getting it real up close. It comes more to life. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Did you, uh, by chance, um start your uh, travels on the Harriet Tubman uh, Underground Railroad route? No, I haven't uh, done anything on Harriet Tubman, uh, something I would like to do. I think that would be a nice uh, a group tour for someone to get together a tour of that and have uh, someone come out with a large collection of our people, young and old, to navigate through that tour, a weekend trip that would be great. Uh, okay. Well, you might be interested to know that you can go to the archives of blackhistoryblog.com, The Gist of Freedom. Uh, we've done some shows uh, recently on uh, entrepreneurs who are uh, gui have guiding tours uh, through Detroit and Canada, etc. You can find that on um, again in the archives at uh, The Gist of Freedom. I'll do that on iTunes. Okay, I didn't know she had the, uh, the tours. That sounds like uh, something i got to uh, take her up on. Oh, yeah. Leslie Gist brings you black history day in and day out. We don't set aside one special month for black history. Yeah, um, back black to history day, every day is black history. Black exactly. history is American history. Without our contribution, then as well as today, America would not exist. We are the core of American existence. I was also interested in um, this uh, mention in the piece that we heard, the African Civilization Society, um, which was 
somewhat at odds with or a group of abolitionists or that were at odds with the leaders of the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of, um, well, the abolitionists were basically pacifists. And um, it was also brought out in the piece uh, how some wanted to start military companies. I think uh, Massachusetts, the abolitionists in the state of Massachusetts were at the forefront of that. Could mm. not get the thing of the governor. Um, so they decided that perhaps they would uh, raise funds through subscription so they could get the necessary arms uh, so they could start military training. I'm not familiar with that subject uh, at all. It's the first time I'm hearing about blacks. At that time, we were called colored folks, colored troops. Uh, this is They was raising uh, descriptions to get arms to protect, to take on uh, what they was getting arms for what exactly? Well, actually, I, it was around the 1850, uh, 1850 Slave Fugitive Act that they could have armed resistance against those slaveholders who were coming north to retrieve their runaways. Um, the piece mentioned that um, the states could not interfere or constrain a master from retrieving a runaway, nor was the state required to assist in the recapture. Um, that was left, I believe, to federal marshals could uh, be involved in the retrieval. So a number of blacks thought that perhaps they should arm themselves. Um, and if the piece also mentioned that when Fort Sumner got uh, fired on, that um, Frederick Douglass canceled his trip to Haiti mm. because Frederick Douglass had started leaning towards, well, you know, maybe um, immigration might be the thing to do. Maybe we need to get up out of here. And he uh, was given... Uh, an all-expense-paid trip to Haiti, and before he left, Fort Sumner was fired on. And well, I think that that uh, armed resistance, or at least an armed conflict, was going to uh, come about in spite of the uh, black abolitionists being pacifists for the most part. You were about to say something? I'm getting an educational lesson from you, and I love it. Well, actually, it's from the. Uh, I'm getting it as well from uh, Benjamin Quarles's book here, The Black Abolitionist. Another thing that stood out for me too, I don't know if you heard it, um, the "Die Free or Live" slave uh, speech um, delivered in New York at one of those conventions, and how it really stirred the folks up and. Uh, it was a very strong message. Um, they tried to water it down, but that didn't happen. So I guess the militancy amongst some of the abolitionists um, um, as well. And also, we talk about when they were mentioning the colonization societies, how Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, the main character in that book, George Harris, 
one of the reasons that so many abolitionists and so many folks wanted to go back to Africa because her main character in Uncle Tom's cabin had yearned to return to his homeland, the land of his father. So that caused a somewhat of a split between different factions within the movement. And they were hoping or had wished she had not written that particular chapter uh, featuring Mr. George Harris, uh, which is going to cause me to revisit Uncle Tom's cabin. It's been a many a year. Uh, I went out to Uncle Tom's uh, place in Canada. There's a house they have on Uncle Tom. He, he was quite a guy, and he even visited the Queen of England. Uh, he was a very talented man, and uh, that's something to look more into for, for for the viewers out there to find out more about this character, Uncle Tom. Uh, he was a real life character and quite a quite a quite a man that lived in Canada, and he did some great things for our people. Let's see. I'm going over my notes here um, relative to uh, the reading. You have any other comments? When I went to Canada, it was a, a white minister that was able to utilize his power to get a lot of land in the area where the church was at, uh, particularly for all African Americans that was uh, trying to escape uh, to Canada, and that, that land was utilized for them. And uh, I was very impressed. The church is still there. I can't recall the minister, unfortunately. But uh, they they was assisted by a few uh, white ministers that uh, joined the effort to uh, to free them, which wasn't going on in the states. And they the Canada opened the doors. Uh, certain parts of Canada opened the doors to African Americans uh, for that, and a lot of them stayed in Canada, even though the massive Emancipation Proclamation by Lincoln uh, came about. They refused to come back to the States, and uh, a lot of the family members was there when I met them in those settlements. It was, it was quite an, uh, an honor to meet them because they spoke very proudly about their ancestors and had a rich history uh, with, with, through uh, documents, and uh, they brought that out very well. Okay. I want to go back, and I, I mentioned the uh, save, uh, Fugitive Slave Law a couple of times in 1850, and basically that was a law that allowed uh, masters to uh, retrieve runaways that they could go to any state in the Union to, re, uh, to retrieve runaways. Anyone who harbored a runaway would be guilty of a felony and could also be arrested. Um, there were a number of historic uh, rescues. Christiana um, was one of those where a master went looking for an escaped slave and ran into some resistance by uh, black folks and abolitionists to prevent the uh, retrieval of that runaway slave. And then again, uh, in 1860, in Philadelphia, Moses Horner um, was a slave who had escaped, and uh, abolitionists went to to free him. But this time, it got uh, the tables got turned on him, and the rescuers were seized. 
And uh, in the reading, I don't know if that was, uh, there were 12 or 37 warrants issued. Only two individuals were tried, and one of those was Charles Langston, um, one of the forebears of uh, Langston Mercery Hughes. Um, there was also the Shadrach uh, uh, intervention in Boston. Uh, and I believe that's when Boston, uh, the abolitionists there, some of the more militant ones, wanted to form their own militia. And, uh, of course, the governor uh, denied that he could assist those individuals into doing that. Would have been the forerunner, if you will, of the National Guard that we are all uh, familiar with uh, today. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of flip-flopping going on. Do we have a caller? Okay. Are you still there, David? Yes, I am. Okay. So we had a caller trying to come in. Uh, we're talking about some... Uh, some of the famous rescues that were going on relative to that uh, fugitive slave law that was passed in 1850, which was actually the second uh, fugitive slave law that had been issued. The first was in 1789, I believe, uh, relative to uh, the fugitive slave law. So that was the second time that a fugitive slave law had been, uh, had been enacted and passed. I was also noticing in the reading, uh, 1792 was that first fugitive law, by the way, 1792. And I noticed um, things were getting so heady there that uh, abolitionists... Uh, you mentioned there were 38 people arrested for treason. And out of those 38, uh, 35 were black. Mm. And they were part of the Vigilance, the vigilance Committee. Uh, in, uh, I believe that was the state of Boston. Based upon what you're speaking about, it's, it appears that Everything was coming to a boiling point. It is thought the uh, intensity started to increase uh, throughout the United States, and uh, it, it just got uh, to that point, especially after John Brown let, let that insurrection. And uh, it seems that America was really at that point of uh, they really had to face up to that fact about slavery. And it really came into a climax uh, with that firing on Fort Sumner. It seemed like that was bound to happen. Sooner or later, it was going to be armed conflict, uh, uh, insurrection on a large scale. And uh, it seemed like the handwriting was on the wall somewhat. As you look at all these different events going on that you're speaking about, that Qualys was, uh, that brings, you know, brings, to the attention of uh, the reader, so uh, you could see it all being played out right in front of you. How he, you know, captures captures that. 
through his uh, through his uh, skillful writing on our history. Exactly. Yeah, Frederick Douglass was ready to go to war. Um, like I said, that when Fort Sumner uh, was fired on, uh, he uh, canceled his trip to Haiti and uh, really got involved uh, with the war, really set a fire into Lincoln, started advocating for black troops to be taken into the army, uh, etc. Um, David, I want to thank you for joining us here. Um, David Head, who is a Granville T. Woods uh, historian, uh, who's written a book uh, relative to Mr. Uh, Granville T. Woods. And uh, you can get in touch with him at his website, DLH STEM Foundation. Uh, mm-hmm. That's your site, right? All right. That's right. And uh, thank you again for joining us. We're about ready to wrap the program up. I want to remind our listeners that the 150th Emancipation Celebration, the Gist of Freedom, uh, on the 21st of April. And uh, I'll get a location here for you in just a minute. I would also like to thank yourself and Leslie for having me come out and uh, voice my views on our history. Uh, it's really been a pre- pleasure tonight, and I look forward to coming back. Thank you so much. Oh, and we'll be looking forward to have you back uh, as well. And are you on Facebook? Yes, I'm on Facebook. Yes, I am. And can friends friend uh, you there? Would that be okay? That's good, too, yes. David L. Head. David L. Head, H-E-A-D. David L. Head. Okay. Again, that 150th Emancipation Celebration will be at Long Island University on the 21st of March. Um, the guest there will be Harold Holzer, H-O-L-Z-E-R, uh, historian. So those people in the area and those who don't have to travel too far should come out, out on the 21st to the Long Island University and participate in the 150th Emancipation Celebration, which will be hosted by Leslie Gist. We'll be broadcasting from there uh, live uh, on the Gist of Freedom via blackhistoryblog.com. So don't forget that. March 21st. I've been your host. My name is Preston Washington. Your producer has been Leslie Gist. Gist of Freedom, that's G-I-S-T. Is there a caller on the line? Okay, there is not. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out of here, and good night to everyone. Thank you.